standing for the reading of Scripture. Again, we uh, turn to the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, and we read verses 14 through 24 as we are continuing in this section of the Gospel of St. Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And when he, Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said to him, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. In the life of Christian faith, From Mark 9, there is a short prayer that captures the deepest soul urgency informed more fully by many other scripture passages. You just heard me read it. I know it registered with you as it does with me. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now remember here in the gospel of St. Mark chapter 9, we are dealing with the new covenant Christian gospel as the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. That is, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. As we pick up in verse 14 through 29 of, of chapter 9, this is after the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus, a preview of his resurrection glory. Uh, and who he is as the Christ, the Son of God, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, revealing the transcendent and imminent divine power in the kingdom of God in heaven, informs all confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil, past, present, and future. I want you to note this is after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And what is he confronted with? He's confronted with the world in dispute about his claims. He's confronted with the flesh and unbelief and weakness and inability. And he's confronted with the devil and the demon possession as a part of this particular episode with the father bringing his distressed and afflicted son uh, to Jesus or to Jesus' disciples looking for Jesus. So in verses 21 through 27, the devil and the demons are real, created, and fallen spirit beings who've been defeated by the power of Jesus. I want you to understand that. They have been defeated by the power of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, in pledge of the resurrection. At this point, the the, uh, transfiguration was a preview and pledge and covenant of the resurrection. We said that the covenant witnesses were there, uh, Elijah and Moses, 
and three human witnesses, Peter, James, and John. And this pledge of the power, the transcendent and the imminent of who God is present with us in the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is who Jesus is. And in this confrontation, it goes on. Even after the resurrection and ascension and and the fuller witness of the Holy Spirit of God, we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are carrying on this conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this confrontation, we find here a, a valuable, valuable lesson for us that Jesus is able to distinguish between deliver and restore body, soul, and spirit. That's what's going on with this father and with this son particularly in this episode. Jesus is able to distinguish between deliver and restore body, soul, and spirit. If you will remember over the last few um, Lord's Days by way of uh, benediction, because we've been in this passage of Scripture, I've been quoting from uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 that the Lord would sanctify us completely He would make us holy completely. And then the passage goes on to enumerate, to distinguish between, to deliver and to restore us body, soul, and spirit. I hope you make the connection there with what's going on and with Jesus' transcendent and imminent power as the one empowering the kingdom of God here on earth and having sent the Holy Spirit to attest to who He is and His resurrection glory. So look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him, that is to his afflicted son? And he says, From childhood. And often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Uh, Actually, I could just make a point here. It should be that it has thrown him. And you'll understand why I say that in a moment. And often it has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So verses 21 and 22, Jesus' question to the father of this distressed boy reveals a larger theological context of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I I want us to keep that in, in view here. That is, living with sin's effects in the fallen world. This father was living with sin's effect in his own life and the life of his beloved and only son. He was living with sin's effects in this fallen world as you and I do. We continue to live with sin's effects in this fallen world. And the flesh. This father was of flesh and blood. Uh, I told you that it could be that he was previously a believer in the Lord Jesus and that's why he brought his son. I can't say that dogmatically, but I'm not going to rule it out that that was what compelled him to bring his son to to Jesus because he himself believed in the Lord Jesus. But in the flesh, he could not do anything to affect his son and, and to deliver him. He could only pray for him and care for him. And he brings him to Jesus because of the weakness of his flesh and inability, both the father and the son. And then the devil. Yes, the devil and the demons are real. I already mentioned to you that Jesus is defeated. He was manifest. That's what, what John tells us. And I like that word manifest. He was made known to us. It was, it was clarified. It was listed out for us what Jesus came to do. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. Don't give too much power and attention to the devil and to the, uh, to the unclean spirits, to the demons. I've said it many times. The only spirit that we need to give our attention to and to study about and to want to know more of is the Holy Spirit. But yes, the demons... The devil are real, and we are in war, in a spiritual warfare. 
And so we're dealing with the limitations and inability of the flesh, physically and spiritually. And we're also witnessing, that's why I pointed out from Psalm 77, we look to the miracles of God of old. This account of Jesus and his earthly life and ministry is long ago for us. It's not something that is in our lifetime, but it's recorded for us. And for successive generation of Christian believers to know of the mighty works and miracles that God has done and that the Lord Jesus himself has done here, manifesting his power over the devil, the upsurge of the devil's powers during the public ministry of Jesus. They came to their fullest peak. God removed the restraints to some degree, allowing this kind of demonic activity to be witnessed and demonstrated And the upsurge of the devil's attempt of rebellion and wanting to destroy and certainly targeting even what the devils confess repeatedly, Jesus, the Son of God. Who are you? We know who you are. The Holy One of God. And so the upsurge and demonic presence and power manifest so that Jesus' power over them is unquestionable. And that continues today. I believe that the demonic powers have been restricted, but they're still real. There is still demonic influence. I don't want to attribute to the devil what is just depraved human sin and rebellion against God. That's why I'm very careful about that. But at the same time, I know that there is a real spiritual warfare from what Scripture reveals, the the curtain pulled back a little bit and God telling us we are in a spiritual warfare and we need spiritual means and weaponry to conduct this warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so answering Jesus' question, the Father expresses a lifetime of heartbreaking struggle in caring for his son and protecting him from childhood. From childhood, this has been going on and this tortured condition. Now, I pointed out to you, this is a special case. It's important for us to take a moment to consider this. This father bringing his son, and his son's case is a special case. It's carefully detailed by Mark as different from previous encounters with disease, disabilities, and demons. From a close study of the text with the broader context of Mark's record, and in comparison with the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, which I'm going to show you, there are several reasons to view this episode as a compound case of disease and demonic presence and possession. And so I would ask you to follow along. Here's the first reason. And I gave you an example of this in reading the text. There are two grammatical categories that are used consistently uh, in the text, differentiating the boy from the unclean spirit. The boy is consistently uh, identified and used in the masculine uh, gender, and the, the uh, the unclean spirit is consistently identified in the Greek text and used in the neuter uh, gender. So there are, two, there are two categories that are clearly marked out grammatically for us. Secondly, the boy is described in Matthew's gospel as being epileptic or moonstruck. That's what the literal term means, moonstruck. It's a term that we have carried over and used lunatic. That's what lunatic means, moonstruck. Uh, but it is uh, translated for us and used uh, in a more uh, medical way of epileptic. He has seizures. He's epileptic. Um, this was a physical condition of seizures not attributed to demonic presence and also as being affected by a mute spirit and Jesus further identifies as a mute and deaf spirit. So there's a compound condition here. The boy has a physical uh, affliction and disease 
uh, that causes seizures, epilepsy, uh, being moonstruck, as they thought. And then there is also the added condition of the demonic presence as a mute, an unclean spirit that causes him to be mute and, as Jesus says, deaf. That, that's important for us because this, this, this um, difference is uh, of the unclean spirit. It intentionally differentiates the physical condition from the supernatural presence. That's what I want you to see. Previously, Jesus had healed someone who was speech impaired. They were mute, if you'll remember, and they were also deaf. And this was not demon possession. It was just a, a couple of chapters before, in chapter 7 of Mark. And I've given you the reference there, verses 32 through 35. If you go back there, you'll see, when we were preaching through there, we saw that Jesus healed, he, he um, had compassion on, and he cured this person who was mute with speech impairment and deaf, but it was not demon possession. It was a physical condition and disability. But in the case of this boy, the mute and deaf condition is attributed to an unclean spirit, and somehow this unclean spirit is holding this boy hostage with powers to isolate and abuse him, and as it would seem, taking advantage of his physical dis, uh, disease, disability, with malicious cruelty, as the father describes, trying to destroy him. Now, I pointed out to you last week, demons do not have the power of death. But this particular demon was intent on trying to destroy this boy, throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the, to the uh, uh, water at the times of his seizure when he was in incapacitated. How desperately cruel. Doesn't that convey to you a sense of the, how diabolical and how deadly and hateful the, the demon cast are. We should see it in that way. I also told you that um, as I studied through this text, uh, sort of disappointingly, I didn't find any other uh, of the sources that I used that were recognizing a compound condition of both disease and demon possession, but choosing one or the other as it were. And then th this week I got to thinking, you know, I didn't check Calvin on that. And so um, I went to Calvin's Harmony of the Gospels and checked his passage on this and found out that this is what he says, that he does recognize as well. Uh, if he didn't, I probably wouldn't be quoting him. But that's a joke. That was a joke. All right. Anyway, he does, so I am quoting him. And this is what Calvin says. Yet this does not mean that Satan does not mix his attacks with natural means. And so I consider that this man was not deaf and dumb naturally, but that his tongue and ears were possessed by Satan. Then when the weakness of his brain and nerves made him liable to epilepsy, the sickness made worse by the same Satan, taking advantage of him, manifesting a greater cruelty, uh, and displaying it in such a way as the father, uh, just so heartbroken and tears cried and begged Jesus to relieve and to, um, to help them. Now, the third thing I also want to point out to you, the third reason is, is important. And this takes in the scope of what we have from what we've already been studying uh, from the Gospel of Mark all the way up here now to chapter 9. Jesus' practices of physically healing and casting out demons are consistently recorded as two different actions. All right, Jesus' practices of healing and of casting out demons are consistently recorded as two separate actions. He healed and he cured the physically diseased or disabled, but he cast out the demons. And this is evident to us in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 34. 
Then he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And then I've given you several references you can follow through uh, on into the chapters of Mark where each time it's identified for us if Jesus heals someone, the reference is to his healing and his curing of them. But if Jesus encounters a demon or devil, he cast him out. And those two descriptions of practices are consistently carried through uh, in the record that we have. And that brings us then to the fourth and final reason, uh, and that is the pattern of difference between physical healing and casting out demons is also followed in the case of this boy recorded as two different actions by Jesus. Matthew says that he rebuked the demon and he cured the child. Uh, Luke says that he rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child. And here we're told in Mark's gospel, giving us more details, he cast out the unclean spirit, banished him and says, don't enter him anymore. But then we're going to see this as we go on. He raises the boy up from what appeared to be death. Uh, So he cast out the demon and he restored and cured the boy. Um, So for those reasons, I believe that this is a compound uh, and special case. We don't have another recorded case like this. And I'm going to clue you into something else that's really interesting. That is, this is the last recorded incident of Jesus casting out a demon. There will be some more records of Jesus healing people. There is a record of Jesus transferring his power to his apostles to cast out demons. But this is the last recorded incident of Jesus casting out a demon. The next record that we have of a a demonic presence is we're told that Satan entered the heart of Judas. So pretty significant, I believe. Uh, Look, if you will, at verse 23. Jesus said to the Father, If you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. Uh, There are some uh, textual variants here, but I believe this text is well represented. If you can believe, and that's not the if of possibility there. It's the if of the uh, reality of saving faith, which I want you to understand. Jesus' response to this distressed father is often taken out of context and made a pretext for false gospel faith claims of self-generated works and abilities. You've got to work up this faith to believe. And whatever you believe, you know, if you really believe it, if you can work it up, if you can generate enough faith, it can be so. You can have whatever you want. Have you heard those false claims of false gospels? That's not what Jesus is saying here. As a matter of fact, this whole context is about the inability of the flesh. We don't even have the, the ability to believe apart from the power of God, the regenerating power, the presence of the Spirit of God, and the gift of faith. So the detailed descriptions of the story emphasize that both the Father and the Son are helpless in the flesh. Don't miss that. We hear the Father so heartbroken, so distressed, a lifetime of care and struggle and love for His Son, but He's helpless in the flesh. And the boy. We need to understand that this boy needed the saving grace of Jesus too. He couldn't speak. According to Jesus, neither could he hear. He was isolated. We think, how how could the gospel be communicated to him? In such a disabled condition. Our hearts yearn and are broken. Over the years in my pastoral ministry, I gave you an example last week, but I've known many who have had the lifelong care of a disabled and... and, um, feel helpless for a child. 
And, and that's what touches me in terms of this passage and this, this account so much. As Jesus is saying, no, in the weakness and inability of our flesh, even in those whom we love so intently who are disabled in body, soul, and spirit. Think of a child that can't hear or speak or is even blind. And yet, that child is not beyond the saving grace of God and His covenant promises and the wonder of how can the gospel be communicated to Him. The Holy Spirit is not limited by our fleshly and human inabilities and weaknesses. We are helpless, but God is not. That's what Jesus is saying in reference to the possibility with God. That's why I believe that every child thus afflicted, every Down syndrome child is made in the image of God and has a soul that needs Jesus for salvation. How God will do that, I know He will do what's right. I know what He will do what's holy. And thus all of those who are more manifestly disabled. We don't lose hope. You see, out of all of the prospects of human intensity and struggle and uncertainty about these things, we have the hope of the love of God. It's a sad and pretty much stomach-churning history of how people who have been so afflicted in various ways, particularly mentally, uh, with Down syndrome, chromosomally, or whatever the case may be, with varying and struggling disabilities of human helplessness. It is a sad and stomach-churning history of how fellow humans have treated them. But not so Christianity, and not so Jesus. And that's what I really want to say more than anything about this passage. That's why I, I tried to spend some time in trying to say to you, this is why I think this is a special case. There's not another ex example like this in Scripture. The boy who was compounded in both physical disability and demonic presence, but not beyond the saving grace of the Lord Jesus, giving us hope as well. And so Jesus' answer to this heartbroken father's plea for um, help directs both the father and Christian believers to the theological lesson of this episode that in both the natural and the supernatural realms, the only true faith is saving faith. Not this false faith claim of you can have whatever you want if you believe enough. No, the only true faith is saving faith. What was most important, what is of most value to this distressed boy, even from his father's care for him? His soul. Yes, the father wants relief. Yes, the father wants protection. Yes, the father's helpless in the flesh and in the spirit. He appeals to Jesus. And we have a wonderful story of what Jesus did. And beloved, I want to tell you something. What is recorded for us here in scripture of what Jesus did, I believe is the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Do you doubt the power of Jesus? I don't. Do you doubt the power of Jesus and his gospel and the transcendent and the imminent power of the kingdom of God to reach beyond our human weaknesses and inabilities and helplessness into the soul of those who humanly seem to be out of our reach? I don't doubt that. Thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, as Jesus saved, they don't save themselves. And this is so apparent. It's so unsettling <laughs> to us in the account 
of this distressed boy, diseased and demon-possessed, and saved by Jesus. We ought to walk out on cloud nine this morning. We ought to walk out of here without our feet touching the ground because we've been in a holy place hearing about the love and the power of the Lord Jesus to save the lost. All are beyond saving themselves. We think this boy is a special case. Do you see yourself and the father? Physically and spiritually helpless. So you, so me. Spiritually and physically helpless. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save those whom you love the most. This is the hope of every parent. That Jesus saves. I can't save my children. I can't turn them to the Lord. I can't reach in and change their heart. Just like this father couldn't release his boy's ears or his tongue. He couldn't uh, reach in and and banish the uh, seizures. And he had no effect over the power of the demon. So he brought him to Jesus. See, that's the gospel. Do you know when we preach the gospel? Do you know when we proclaim the gospel? What are we doing? We're pointing people. We're bringing people to Jesus. I'm not ashamed to call out people, come to the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's what I'm here doing, preaching this word to you. I'm saying to you, let's come to Jesus. When we have the Lord's Supper this morning, the Lord's Supper is saying to us, come to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So saving faith is the primary message of the New Covenant Gospel. This is the place to start in evaluating faithful preaching and teaching and confronting the world, the flesh, and the devil. The all kinds of possibilities that Jesus says in verse 23 claims for those who believe are not human imaginations or works of selfish flesh. The all possibilities are gospel possibilities qualified by the will of God revealed throughout His Word in Holy Scripture. Telling us what is the will of God. Telling us what God would have us do. This is the will of God, Jesus says. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe. This story of the father bringing his son, diseased and demon-possessed, takes place after the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, and reveals Jesus rebuking unbelief, false faith in every generation. The only Son of God who is able to save the lost, who are naturally and supernaturally unable to save themselves or their loved ones, is shown by contrast with sin's effects on the distressed father and, as Luke tells us, his only son. His only son who is naturally disabled and supernaturally enslaved. You think those who are unsaved in the world are not Naturally disabled and supernaturally enslaved. That's what the Bible tells us. We see it so disturbingly in the story of this boy. But do we not know that everyone who is unsaved is naturally disabled because of sin and they are supernaturally enslaved to sin? That's what the Bible tells us. That's the natural condition of sin. Original sin and actual sins. That's why the gospel is good news and that's why we look to Jesus alone who has the power to seek and to save the who? The lost. Here's displayed the power and the hope of the new covenant gospel in this sin-fallen world 
over the power of the devil's darkness. The light of saving faith overcomes the world's darkness. And that's what I hope this passage this morning is to you. Light shining in the darkness of Jesus our Savior. And we come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded of that. Come to Jesus. I I think that's maybe the best invitation that I have to this Lord's Supper.